So Paul has been providing the early church in Corinth with perspective. And perspective is, is huge. It's monumental and it's essential in the life of the believer. It's called a number of different things in scripture. It's called a sound mind. It's called a clear mind. It's called a, clo- uh, a sober mind. But really it's thinking rightly. Having your mind permeated by God's truth. The value of perspective cannot be understated. Right perspective, right thinking. And right thinking is a lot easier said than done, isn't it? There are so many things inside of us that often cloud our judgment. Fear, anger, sexual desire, fatigue. How many of you have felt something and you were so certain of it and then you went to sleep and woke up the next day and realized you were dead wrong about it? That's why people say sleep on it, because sometimes we need that reset. We need to get out of the emotion of a situation, sleep on it, and then we wake up the next day and we say, oh, that wasn't as important as I thought it was, or even hunger. Any of you live with someone that if their blood sugar gets a little bit low, it's like the Hulk? I don't. I don't. I'm just asking if you guys do, and you give them a Snickers and then they're back to normal. Something as simple as hunger can cloud our our judgment. And then outside circumstances, stress, traumatic circumstances, emotional pain, physical pain. There are so many things that can cloud our judgment and get in the way of us thinking rightly. And if we were here last Sunday... We see that Paul doesn't dismiss the way things feel. Look at chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians in verse 8. Paul doesn't ignore the fact that we're human beings. And God created emotion and he created feeling. But what Paul does is he balances our feelings with truth. So in chapter 4, verse 8, what does he say? We're hard-pressed on every side. We've we've been there before, where we have a trial coming from the front, because they never come alone, right? Trials never come alone. They always come uh, with friends. So you have the trial coming from the back, and you're backing away from it, but then you feel a trial coming up from behind you, and then from this side, and that side, and from above, and you're hard-pressed on every side. And Paul says, yes, we're hard-pressed on every side, yet we are not crushed. No matter how much pressure your trials are applying to you, we will not be crushed. He says, we're perplexed, we're confused, but not in despair. That word in the Greek, it means hopeless. Hey, we may be confused about the events that are taking place in the world today, but we are not ones who are without hope. We know how the story ends. Paul says, we're persecuted, but we're not forsaken or abandoned. We're struck down but not destroyed. 
Paul doesn't ignore the fact that we're human and that we feel, but he balances our feelings with what is absolutely true. And guys, if we, we talked about faithfulness, faithfulness last week, the ability to persevere even under duress. That's something that my generation and we as a culture, we miss. When things get difficult and we're not feeling it anymore, we move to something else. But how many times does Paul call us to stand firm in the faith? How many times are we called to persevere, to fight through? And I am certain that perspective, and when I say perspective, remember I'm talking about right perspective, God's perspective, the truth. Right thinking about situations and circumstances breeds perseverance. It's when we start thinking incorrectly about something that we're more and more tempted to bail. So if we want to be faithful under duress, if we want our allegiance to Christ to bear fruit to consistency, right thinking is essential. And look at chapter 5. I'm just going to give you a few phrases from chapter 5. In verse 1, how does Paul begin? For we feel, for we know. Verse 6, we are always confident. Verse 8, we are confident. Verse 11, knowing. It's okay to have feelings, but sometimes feelings lie. And Paul staked his life on what he knew, not what he felt. Spiritual maturity is the ability to tell the difference between what we feel and what we know and making what we know the foundation of how we live. Franklin Roosevelt once said, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than the fear. And then the famous cowboy theologian, John Wayne he put it this way, courage is being afraid and saddling up anyway. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. Listen to the perspective in these verses. For our light affliction, which is for but what? A moment. Is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, But at the things which are not seen, for the things which are temporary, the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I came prepared. This. Let's look at that again. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 
while we do not look at the things which are seen, and we don't fix our gaze on the temporary, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's a right perspective. The things we do, do not see are more real than the things which we see. And that's a theme that Paul is going to carry over into the fifth chapter. Living according to what we know, not what we feel. Living with an eternal perspective, not a temporary one. See, Paul, and this is something, there's a lot to admire about Paul. But one of the things I admire about him a great deal is his deep affection for the things that last. He has a deep affection for the eternal. His close relationship with the Lord, his time spent in the Lord's presence, it developed within him a taste for the eternal, and it really subdued his love for temporary things. And that's what moved him to travel hundreds of miles by foot and by sea to spread the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ under constant duress. He was constantly persecuted by the Jews, by the Romans, uh, by just uh, natural disasters, shipwreck. He was just constantly under duress. But what did Paul say? None of these things move me, nor do I count my life as loss. For the sake of the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. The closer we get to Jesus, the shine of this world begins to fade away, doesn't it? You know, fix my eyes on Jesus, and the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Paul, Paul's life lived that out. If we find ourselves hungering for the things of this world, where the things of this world really dominate our thought lives, then the reality is we've lost sight of eternal things. We've lost sight of Jesus. And again, this morning is about bringing perspective. That's my prayer, is that as we study God's word, we would experience the Lord in a way that transforms transforms our desires that we wouldn't be men and women that know what we should do we don't want to do it but we're going to do it anyway because it's the right thing but instead we're allowing the lord to transform our desires that he would give us a hunger and thirst for his eternal work his word loving others sharing the gospel of jesus christ and we wouldn't settle for investing our lives in temporary pleasures that are fading away. Instead, we would seek out permanent joy that can only come from Jesus Christ. So let's begin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Say those first three words with me. For we know. For we know that if our earthly house, what's he talking about? Our bodies. For our earthly house, this tent is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands. Now, Paul says, if this earthly tent is destroyed, but I'm certain that he knows all of these earthly tents, 
unless Maranatha, Jesus comes back and takes us home, they're going to be destroyed. Our earthly bodies are breaking down as we speak. Positive message, I know, but it's the reality of humanity because of sin. Because of sin. These bodies have been corrupted by sin. And we'll get into this in a little bit, but the world wants to tell you, no, death is just a, the na- a natural part of living. We all live, we all die, and we all go into the abyss. No, there is something deeply wrong with death. Sin has corrupted our bodies, and we are no longer made for eternity because of one man's sin entering all mankind. So Paul says, this earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, but we, being the church, born again, new creations through Christ, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan. My wife gives me such a hard time now because I make sounds getting in the car, I make sounds getting out of the car, and I'm only 41, and I'm like, it's already beginning, and I'm not even thinking about it. We groan. But it's deeper than that, isn't it? The longer we live, the longer we long for something more than this. We know it. C.S. Lewis pointed it out. If there's something in me that craves something better, and I'm paraphrasing here, then I was made for that better thing. If I crave something more, then I know that I was made for something more. In every human being, I know that there is uh, an understanding that this isn't it. Now, what we do with that is the question. Paul says we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that morality may be swallowed up or mortality may be swallowed up by life. Again, Paul doesn't say we believe or we think or we expect or we hope. He says we know. And what do we know? That this is not the end for the believer. That this life is not the end. Now again, I've said this a hundred times, but we cannot confuse familiarity with understanding. Do we know that? Now, let me ask you a question. If Jesus appeared to you in the flesh, and he said, I am here to tell you that I love you, and he explained to you what his calling was for your life, he said, I'm here to to just tell you I love you, I want to reassure you, uh, Everything I've promised is right and true, and I want you to go out and I want you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If he came to you and said that to you in the flesh, would it change your life? 
would it change how you're living right now? I think most of us would say yes. Now, he's already said it. And there's a gap between how we're living now and that reality, if you came in the flesh and said it to our face, and how we would live, that gap is a gap of faith. Does that make sense? Jesus said, blessed are those, what did he say to Thomas? You've seen and you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and they still believe. So he has spoken those words to us. And if there's a gap between how we're living now and how we would live if he said it to our face, that's a gap of faith. There's an issue of trust there, and he wants to grow that trust because what he has said is right and true. And he's given us his spirit to live within us to remind us of that truth. So we may say, yes, I know that I've been reborn for eternity. But are we living that way? We have the parable of the seed and the sower. And just because the seed hits the ground doesn't mean it's going to grow. Just because we've heard truth doesn't mean we know it. Paul says, I know this to be true. And that knowing was the foundation for him to persevere through some of the most challenging trials we can imagine. Beaten, imprisoned, he was on the doorstep of death, carried out of the city, and he kept going. If we don't have our coffee, we have a hard time still going. Knowing. So what what did Paul know that had taken root in his heart and changed the way that he lived? It was really the nature of death. Now, how many of you like thinking about death? None of us do. Death is not a subject, at least in our culture, that we like to think about often. And when we're forced to face it, we do our best to move past it as quickly as possible. What do we call our funerals now? Well, we call them memorial services Sometimes we call them a celebration of life. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's just reflective of our approach to death. At our celebrations of life, people come up and share. And what do they share about the person who's passed? All the good stuff that that person did, how amazing they were. Even if they weren't amazing, we're still going to get up and talk about how amazing they were. How wonderful they were. We have a slideshow. Sometimes there's a viewing where that individual is just dressed in a suit that they've never worn before. I'm not making light of it, but it's just the way that we approach death. Now, cremation is more common. And rarely, I mean, I've done quite a few memorial services now, and rarely is there a moment where the casket is being lowered down into the grave. People may go out to a graveside service, stand around, but everybody leaves before that moment where the casket's lowered down into the grave. 
And I think, again, and I understand it, but we're doing everything we can to try to take away the sting of death. And we may be doing a little bit of a disservice because I don't know that there's any better apologetic for those who are separated from God than the reality of how temporary this life is. We need to face the reality of death, that this life is it. We get one life and death stings, death hurts. I think for the Christian, the memorial service should be a painful, glorious thing. Immensely painful on one hand and glorious on the other at the same time. It's okay when we deal with the pain of loss to say, this is terrible. I love that person. And now for a long time, that person is not going to be there on the other end of the phone when I call. I'm not going to be able to sit down and have breakfast with them anymore. I'm not going to be able to feel their embrace any longer. This is terrible. But it's not the end. You know, I... I saw this so clearly when my grandfather was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. And it was about the same time that we were having uh, my son Isaiah when he was born. And so my grandfather was losing all of these abilities. Uh, the, The tumor was pressing in on his brain. He was losing the ability to see, to feed himself, to speak. That's rough. I know many of you have been through something similar with someone that you care about. There's something so wrong about that. And then my son Isaiah, he's learning to feed himself. He's trying to utter words. And there's so much hope and possibility in life. And you're like, yeah, this is good. But over here, this is terrible. And that's a right perspective. Death stings. The number one killer of men and women is death. (laughs) I know, you can tweet that out if you want. (laughs) And again, what does the world say? It's just a part of life. And because it's a part of life, and there's nothing afterwards, we got to put all our eggs in this basket. We got to do whatever we can to stay as young as we can, as long as we can, and get the most out of this life because there's nothing after it. Death is just a part of life. But here's our message as Christians no, it is not. Death is painfully sad. But for the Christian, it's wonderfully glorious. Our earthly bodies, yes, they're temporary and they're slowly decaying. But God has a new body prepared for us, custom made for eternity. And because we've been born again, born of the Spirit, we are now reborn for eternity. We can stand in the presence of a perfectly righteous God and not crumble because we have the righteousness of Christ. 
That's what's required to live eternally in the presence of a perfect God. We have to become born again. We have to be transformed. The corrupt has to be made incorruptible. We have to be born of the Spirit, Jesus told Nicodemus, if we're going to see the kingdom of God. And that's, what's Paul, that's what Paul's talking about. I know. I know that this life is not the end. And I, again, I don't know of anything more devastating than the pain of loss. It can be paralyzing. It can cause Christians that love the Lord to call into question either his goodness or his power. God, how could you, if you love me, how why did you take them? This is not the end. And when we see life that way, it radically changes the way we look at suffering and the way that we look at trials, knowing the very thing we fear the most has been dealt with by Jesus through his death and his resurrection. Him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Those who are so terrified of death because they believe that this life is all there is, they're in bondage. And Paul says Jesus frees us from that bondage. But we have to know. We have to be certain. We have to stand firm on that promise that we were created for another kingdom. This is not our home. But while we're here, we're inviting people to join us. Be a part of an eternal kingdom. Become born again. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Death is coming. But death doesn't have to be the end. St. Augustine wrote, We are burdened with this corruptible body, but knowing that the cause of this burdensomeness is not the nature and the substance of the body, but it's corruption. He was saying our bodies are not the problem, it's that our bodies are corrupted by sin. We therefore do not desire to be deprived of the body, but to be clothed with immortality. That's where we're set free. So look at chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, I know where this life is leading. That God is preparing a, a new body, a new house, a new tent, an eternal tent. And when this body breaks down, I have another one waiting for me. Now he, ha, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, 
who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. How do we know this is true? Because eternity is living within us. God's very presence is living within us as a guarantee, as a promise, as an earnest, as a deposit. But we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul says, I have a guarantee for you. The Spirit of God is living in you if you've given your life to Jesus. What has no beginning and no end, he who has no beginning and no end is living in you through the third part of the triune God, the Holy Spirit. He's a down payment. He's a pledge. He's earnest money, if you will. The fact that the Holy Spirit of God lives in us and is guiding us, and is reminding us, and is encouraging us, and is comforting us, and is convicting us, that is a reminder of this promise. Are you a different individual than you were before you came to know Christ? Why? Is it because you're just making better decisions? No. If you have been transformed by the living God... He has transformed the way you see and feel and experience this world because you're seeing things clearly. Are you perfect? No. That was perfect timing. Thank you. No. No one here is perfect. But you're you're changed. I've used this analogy before. It's not mine, but I think it's good. If someone came in off the street and they walked through the doors and they said, hey, I just got hit by a Mack truck. It was doing 70 miles an hour. But they looked like they were fine. You would say, no, you didn't. You didn't. You did not come face to face with the force of a Mack truck. Because when you do, it changes you a little bit. But there are so many people who say, I have experienced the power of the transforming power of God, yet there's no change. Now, who are we to, I mean, we're called to judge fruit, but we never, we don't know what's going on in a heart. But I want to encourage you, if you're the same person you are before you came to know Christ, that you are right now. Have you believed a false gospel? Have you believed a gospel that said, hey, add Jesus to your portfolio, get that fire insurance, raise your hand? No, just believe in the existence of Jesus. That's not what Jesus said. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, you must first deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Is that a work? No. It's saying, I am hopeless, and I am helpless, and I need to be forgiven. That's the message that's missing today. That we are sinners, and we stand guilty before a righteous God, and we need Jesus' righteousness to save us. 
Did you come to Jesus knowing that you needed to be saved? Or was he just a new way of living, a new way of being moral? But again, we are talking about the transforming power of Christ where God indwells us with his spirit. You are, if you're born again, you are not the same person you were before you came to know Christ. And let that be a reassurance. Paul said earlier in 2 Corinthians, we look in the mirror and what do we see? Glory to glory. That we are being transformed into the image of Christ from glory to glory. Not because of our good works, but because of Christ living in us. Ephesians 1.13, Paul says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. If you're struggling with doubt this morning, when Paul says, we are perplexed, but we are not hopeless. We are perplexed, but we do not doubt. If you're like, I do doubt, my encouragement, start saying yes to the Spirit of God. I think more, the more we walk in the Spirit, Paul says, you've received the Spirit, now walk in the Spirit. The more we walk in the Spirit, the more we're walking and reminded of that guarantee of eternity. But the more we say no to what God's trying to do in our life, our perspective just gets twisted. And the temporary things start taking more of a prominent role in our life, and the eternal things start getting put on the shelf. Walk in the Spirit. Start simple. Simple first step. When you walk out these doors, I know the Lord's speaking. The next thing He calls you to, just say yes. Maybe you've gotten in the habit of saying no. But God, I'm yours. I want to be obedient to your word. Remind me that I was made for eternity. See, the idea that Paul is getting across here is the Holy Spirit of God living in us. It's kind of like an engagement ring. Aaron told me that when I first proposed to her and I gave her an engagement ring, Every time she would have a bad day, she would look down at that engagement ring and think, man, I got, I got to marry him. <laughs> I mean, she never told me that out loud, but I'm pretty sure that that's what she thought. But that, that's really what Paul's talking about. It's like this engagement ring where we know what's promised to us. And every time we go through a trial, we can look down at it and say, nope, I know what's ahead. I know what's in store for me. And then it becomes a source of excitement and longing and motivation to push through an otherwise really difficult day. That's the spirit of promise living in us. We have a part of heaven, the eternal kingdom, the Spirit of God living in us. So when we look at Paul and we wonder, why was he able to face death so confidently? It's because he knew where his home was. 
And if he was here in the flesh, he would live to Christ. If he was here in the flesh, that meant to him another day to tell people about Jesus. Another day to share the hope that is within me. But if he was taken from this life, oh man, that's what he'd been longing for. To be in the presence of his Savior. Look at verse 9. Paul says, knowing these things, knowing that Christ has saved me and eternity with him is promised and the spirit living me is, in me is the guarantee. Verse 9, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your conscience. Now let me ask this. That word, terror of the Lord, are you terrified of God? The word fear in scripture, it's used for two different things. Sometimes it's being afraid, being terrified, and sometimes it's a healthy reverence or respect for something. But it's not that thing that changes, and it changes the word. Let me explain what I mean. It's our relationship to that thing. And in this situation, our relationship to God. If we stand on the wrong side of the God who spoke the universe into existence and hates sin... That's a terrifying place to stand. If we stand on the wrong side of a God who is just, and his justice is a consuming fire, which it is, that's a terrifying place to stand. But if through his word we believe in his son Jesus Christ, And we are no longer on the wrong side of God. We're not only brought into his home, but we're adopted as sons and daughters. We're brought into his family because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's no longer a terrible fear of God. It is a healthy respect of God. The silliest analogy I could think of was walking through a jungle and you come across a massive lion. And you're terrified. And then that lion says, oh no, we're good. (laughs) Then you respect that lion. And then you want that lion by your side as you continue to travel through. I told you, terrible analogy, but just a little piece of, okay, God, you are. And and we don't have enough of this in our minds today. God, you are to be feared. Again, we've been studying um, 1 and 2 Samuel, and now we're into the book of Kings. And where did the people get off track? 
They stopped fearing God. Just a healthy reverence and a respect, but also a knowledge that, that he has brought us into his family. And Paul says that knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, not wanting them to be on the wrong side of God, not wanting them to be enemies of God because we know who wins. And knowing that that's God's desire for mankind, that mankind would be reconciled unto him. Paul says we persuade men, but we are all well known to God. We know the terror of God, but we also know that God knows us. And you know us, Paul says. For we're not here to commend ourselves, verse 12, again to you, but give you an opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Paul says, you, you know why we've come. These men that say that I'm not worthy to be an apostle, that I'm not worthy to speak truth into your life, you know my track record. They boast in their appearance. They're full of clever words and fancy adornments. But their hearts are lacking. And in verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. So Paul says, we make it our aim. Some translations say it's our ambition. That word is two Greek words compounded together, and it means fond of or friend, and then labor. So it's a... It's a um, it's two words that my generation doesn't like to put together. Friendly labor. That doesn't exist in, in our mind. But Paul's saying, no, this is a friendly work. This isn't easy, but I gladly do it. I desire to be pleasing to him. That's the ministry God has given me. It is a fond labor, and I do it gladly. So turn to Jesus. He says you will stand before him one day. And the question God will ask is what did you do with my son? And Paul is convinced of this fact. And when he stands before the Lord, what does he want to hear from him? Well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. And so it's that respect for God that motivates him. Matthew 10, 27, Jesus says, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but, not, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And you may say, Pastor, we don't preach that kind of stuff anymore. If it's in the Bible, we're preaching it. 
And Jesus says, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Guys, death is coming for all of us. And I plead with you, just as Paul pleaded, get right with God. Don't carry around the burden of shame and guilt. Step into a right relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, that's healthy fear, right? That's a respect. What's unhealthy fear? What does that look like? How many of you are more afraid to get on an airplane than to drive a car? Anyone? Anyone just terrified of... Lisa, <laughs> Lisa, I know. I sat next to her on a mission trip, and um, you'd think we were on a roller coaster. <laughs> Is that a rational fear? If you look at the numbers... It is far more dangerous to get in a car than get in an airplane. But does me telling you that help? Does it change anything? There's a lot of irrational fear. We all, we all struggle with it. I, I like this acronym, fear. That kind of fear is false evidence appearing real. False evidence appearing real. And Satan loves to operate in that kind of fear. This is what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7. And this could be just the culmination of everything we're talking about. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Fear that is rooted in lies, irrational fears that lead to irrational behaviors. We need a change of perspective. We need to know that there is one who holds life and death in his hands. There's nothing that anybody in this world can do to you to take away the promise that you've been given in Christ. So why do we care so much about what people think? That's a, something that... that constantly plays in my mind over and over again as Christians we are called to care about people but not care about what they think we will never care well for someone else we are so prone now to being and I'm guilty of this tiptoeing around people's feelings so much so that we don't help them now, don't get me wrong, for you to help someone, there has to be some relational collateral. They have to know that you care. But sometimes we are so paralyzed because we just don't want anyone to be uncomfortable, including ourselves. So we don't speak up. And is that helpful? Maybe we need to stop thinking so much, oh, I don't want to hurt them, and maybe retrain ourselves to, I want to help them. And me not saying anything about the path to salvation, that's not helping. Do we respect God or man? If our fear of man wins out over our fear of God, do we really believe that one day we will stand face to face with him? Again, knowing versus feeling. Paul knew. 
And that's how he went before some of the most powerful world leaders of his time. And he wasn't impressed or paralyzed by their pomp and circumstance. Guys, we've all been there before, right? Have you ever been in front of like, you've had a conversation with someone who's extremely wealthy, or people get weird around famous people, don't they? Like stupid weird. What is that? It's brokenness. That somehow we have made the decision that that person is so valuable and so important that we struggle to even speak in their presence. Our fear of God always has to win out over the fear of man because what can man do to us? All right, guys, look at verse 14 through 16. So the reverence, Paul's reverence for God, that's one of the motivating factors behind his faithfulness, his consistency, despite persecution and trials. That's what motivates him to move forward, knowing one day he will stand before the, pre- stand before the presence of God. But what else motivates him? Verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us. It's not just that God is all-powerful, but that he's demonstrated the depths of his love through his son, Jesus Christ. He's all-powerful and he loves me. The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Again, what's Paul saying? We regard no one according to the flesh. There aren't people that are super important and not important. We are all in the same boat, Paul says. So when I was in front of Felix and Festus, when I had to go before Herod, nothing changed. They are just men that need Jesus. So we don't regard men according to the flesh. And he says, yes, I know Christ was in the flesh. But he's, we don't know him that way any longer because he's on the right hand of God, preparing a place for us for eternity. The love of Christ compels us, Paul says. Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two. And I love that he uses that term, hard-pressed. You know what causes him stress in his life? I love this. Man, I get to share Jesus right now with people that need to hear about it. Oh, but I got eternity promised. What do I, I can't wait. I want to do both of them. Man, that's a good kind of stress. Do I want apple pie or do I want pumpkin pie? They're both amazing. That's what Paul says. Man, I'm, I'm I'm stuck between the two. But ultimately, Paul didn't have to make that decision. Every morning, he woke up, 
He knew that he had an opportunity. He says, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. And I know that that is far better. But every morning he woke up, he knew that he had one more day to share Jesus. You know, the worries of this world, they do press us on every side. But when we begin to understand the love of Christ, that presses back even harder. Because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. He died for all, Paul said, that those who live should live no longer for themselves. And from now on, we live for Christ. He didn't want anyone to waste their time and money and energy on things that did not last. Things that once seemed so important. Let me give you a couple more verses and we'll close. Philippians 3, 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church concerning righteousness which is in the law. I was blameless, but what things were gained to me, I have counted them as loss for Christ. Christ gave him the right perspective. Maybe we're pursuing degrees. Nothing wrong with a degree. Maybe we're looking for that next promotion. Maybe we're looking at our retirement. Maybe our eyes are fixed on something. And when I say fixed, I'm not saying we just put a little thought into it, do something responsible. I mean, they dominate our thought life. Paul says, I had all those things. And trust me, it's not worth it. It's not all worth all the time and energy and stress, stress and sleepless nights that I spend thinking about things that really have no eternal value. He says, when I came to Christ, I realized that all those things are loss. He uses a much more weighty word when he says that it's waste to me. It's excrement. No longer being intimidated by wealth or education or influence or power. No longer being drawn to those things. Paul says, I'm free. I'm free to follow hard after Jesus. All right. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and have given us that wonderful ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors. We are representatives of God. We are ambassadors for Christ. We go out carrying the banner of Christ as though God were pleading through us. 
We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you're a Christian here this morning and you're wondering what is my purpose, verses 17 through 21 over and over again. Meditate on it. Dwell on it. Study on Paul's words. This is why we are here. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And if you are growing weary and doing good, my prayer is that you would start finding yourself fixed on what is true and what you know and put aside some of the feelings. Because our feelings lie. God never lies.